Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right, this is CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran and journalist Phil Briggs, reporting for CBS News and the Military News and Veteran Lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now, we'll lead off today with an important story for veterans collecting military retirement and disability benefit payments. Check this out. Current VA policy denies retirement pay to disabled veterans whose military career was cut short due to combat-related injuries, financially punishing them for putting their lives on the line. And to right this wrong, the Senate recently introduced the Richard Starr Act, which would grant retirement and disability payments simultaneously to over 42,000 disabled veterans. Here to talk more about it and why we need to push for this and the shocking results of a recent survey is from Mission Roll Call a veteran-focused organization that is built to ensure Congress is doing the right thing. And the man cracking the whip is a Marine Corps veteran, Cole Lyle. Cole, welcome back to CBSI and Vets, man. Absolutely, Phil. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you always charging the halls of Congress and and fighting for the legislation we need. First, explain to me kind of how we got here. What is the deal that we're trying to correct? Retirement payments and disability benefits, but they can't coexist or you can't collect them both? Kind of unpack that for me. Yeah, it's it's an old status quo of existing law that says that, uh, you know, if you are under 50 percent disabled rated by the VA and have 20 years of retirement or you don't have uh, 20 years of retirement because you were medically retired early and have over 50 percent, the benefits are offset. Right. You can't have what's called concurrent receipt of both benefits. Um, so imagine you know, somebody that gets medically retired at, at 14 years of service, uh, you know, has disability benefits from the VA, they get what is called uh, combat-related special compensation from the DOD, which is not equivalent to, like, full retirement pay that they would get if they if they got to 20-year retirement. And if you have VA disability benefits, it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset 
because uh, you're not legally allowed to collect both of those at the same time, which is historically been a, a budget issue because it, it would affect 42 to 50 ish thousand, depending on what you're reading, uh, veterans and, and families across the country. And it would be relatively expensive. But my argument, and I think the moral argument for veterans across the country that this would affect is there are two separate benefits for two separate things. One is for time and service. And one is for combat-related, or not even combat-related, just service-related disabilities that you get from military service. So Senator Tester and and, uh, a few others reintroduced the Richard Starr Act, the Major Richard Starr Act, which would correct the injustice and allow for someone to collect both benefits at the same time, which I think is the right move. And borne out by a recent poll that Mission Roll Call did on the subject where we asked, you know, should veterans be able to receive both of these benefits? And 95% of respondents said yes. And I think we got 17,000 respondents. So it's it's overwhelmingly supported, um, I think, for good reason. And uh, the only objections that I see on the horizon would be budgetary in nature. But you know, when you look in context of the precipitous increase of VA spending and, and DOD spending over the course of the last, you know, even year, but go back 5, 10, 15 years, um, I don't think that's a strong enough argument anymore. Yeah, especially in light of the fact that like the DOD budget, everybody hails as something veterans are for. Look, we passed the Defense Department budget. The NDAA is, you know, now passed. Doesn't that please all veterans? Right. I'm sorry. I don't know a veteran that cares how many more F-22s we buy. I do know that they need to be taken care of because that's what you did when you sent them off to war. And yeah. claiming the defense to budget or the defense department budget somehow satisfies some sort of need in my life is pretty ridiculous. You know, I, I do think on the whole, most veterans understand the need for a strong national defense, and they understand the need uh, for a, a robust budget to take care of, of the national security needs we have. Um, but I don't, to your point, um, necessarily think that if you send folks to war, uh, especially now when we're experiencing kind of a recruiting crisis and you have incentives for military service being degraded kind of in other ways, um, now is not the time. I, I think you need to find creative ways to expand incentives um, and to protect earned benefits. And this is one quick, easy way to do that. Right on. Do you know the backstory with Major Richard Starr? Uh, I, I couldn't give you off the top of my head, like his his entire biography. But, you know, it, it, it's somebody who this particular piece of legislation was inspired by. So. Um, dealt with this issue, his family dealt with this issue. And it's worth noting that this wouldn't necessarily just be helpful to the veterans themselves, but to the families, right? Because in the example I listed earlier, where somebody gets out and medically retired at 14 years, let's say it's like a 04, so a major that gets out medically retired, collects uh, VA disability. We're talking about potentially, you know, seven to $900 extra a month uh, that their family would would receive, uh, which could have, you know, for, for somebody that was like enlisted and is on a fixed income because they can't work and they're on VA disability, uh, would have a huge financial impact. And the reason that Mission Roll Call got involved in this and wanted to pull is because our number one priority is, is suicide prevention. 
And financial instability and financial issues can be a huge driver to that problem. So we wanted to, to poll on this issue and, and wanted to give lawmakers the data, um, especially you know those that might be opposed for budgetary reasons as we go up to the Hill and, and talk about this. Now, you mentioned Senator Tester. Of course, he's been on the Veterans Affairs Committee for years and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, does great work. He supported PACT. I know we have champions in our corner in the Senate. Is there anybody you know right now that we need to address and we need to call upon? Because I know that for every bill that comes up for consideration, when they start talking how much it affects the checkbook, yeah, you find some roadblocks and you find people standing in the way. Um, is there anybody we need to focus on and 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 really try to get on our team? I mean, I don't, I certainly there are, um, right now, I don't think anybody's been public about their opposition for those reasons. So I don't know that I could identify somebody proactively, uh, but pretty much anybody on the budget committee, the, the Senate budget committee, um, or the house budget committee for that matter, because this is a a Senate version of this bill that's going to have to go to the house. And right now when a Republican controlled Congress, when they're talking about, you know, debt ceiling negotiations and trying to, um, rein in uh, spending in Washington and that sort of stuff. Um, it would potentially be an uphill battle trying to convince uh, a Republican-controlled Congress in the House uh, to correct this and potentially spend more money um, when they're looking for ways to cut spending. So it's not an automatic thing. Less than 1% of bills that get introduced get passed, but it is a good sign that Senator Tester, who chairs the Senate VA committee, is the one that introduced this with Mike Crapo, who's a Republican from Idaho. Uh, it has, you know, support of VSOs across the country. Um, so I hope that those who otherwise would have an objection take a look at the people that support this and judge this policy on its merits, not necessarily on the frankly relatively inexpensive cost compared to some of the other things that Congress spends money on um, and and puts this through the committees and, and passes it. Now in our last minute, just want to recap Again, kind of a complex issue, but uh, what we're talking about is when service members retire from the military, they are entitled to both retirement pay from the Department of Defense and disability compensation from the Department of Veterans Affairs if they were injured while in service. Unfortunately, only military retirees with at least 20 years of service and a disability rating of at least 50% are able to collect both benefits at the same time. And under the Major Richard Starr Act, a former service member who is medically retired from the military with less than 20 years of service and is eligible for combat-related special compensation, would no longer have their benefits reduced by an offset. And I know Marine Corps veteran Cole Lyle and the folks at Mission Roll Call, along with all the other veteran service organizations, they all strongly believe that collecting both benefits should never be considered double-dipping. And we'll be back with more when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I am Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and we're going to we're going to cover a topic now that I want to say in the five, six years we've been doing this show, I don't think we've ever touched on. And that's veterans of the Revolutionary War. 
it's kind of hard to find one these days. And in fact, most of us just see this as ancient history in our family tree somewhere. But I recently uncovered a story by Jeffrey Collins from the Associated Press about 12 U.S. soldiers that died fighting in South Carolina and how they were discovered, um, researched, and are now going to be buried again and given the honors that uh, they deserve. Quickly, from the article I found by Jeffrey Collins, uh, it reads, 12 U.S. soldiers died in a pine forest in South Carolina in 1780, their bodies hastily buried beneath a thin layer of soil as their comrades fled from the British, who appeared ready to put a quick and brutal end to the American experiment. But later this month, the carefully gathered and studied remains of these dozen unknown soldiers are getting a proper memorial and burial where they fell on Camden Battlefield. And here to talk to us about this chapter in history and what we can consider some of the first American heroes and some of the first veterans that made the ultimate sacrifice uh, is CEO of the South Carolina Battleground Trust, Mr. Doug Bostick. Doug, welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. Bill, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Indeed. And I'm I'm glad to have you on this very first Revolutionary War veteran discussion. But uh, quickly, tell me a little bit of background about you, about the South Carolina Battleground Trust and how you ended up becoming a military historian. So I'm a professional military historian. Um, everybody that is into history has an origin somewhere. Mine was with my grandfather. He owned a water well drilling company in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, before city water was pervasive, he would drill water wells all over the county. And every place that I went with him, when I worked with him in summers and on weekends, he'd tell me a story about the history of the site. So I just got enthralled with history at a very young age. And um, and then later through college became an historian and um, taught at the University of South Carolina and University of Maryland for a time and uh, moved back to South Carolina after living in Maryland. And I now currently uh, am CEO for the Battleground Trust. And our core mission is preserving historic battlefields and historic military sites in the Palmetto State. A beautiful state. We spend time down there in the summers and absolutely love, love the Carolinas. Uh, That's an interesting way to come about becoming a historian because you learned so much history from these sites. I imagine he dug up quite a few many interesting artifacts over the course of going over those lands. Absolutely. I mean, he he took me to places from Hellhole Swamp, which was the location that of Al Capone's favorite moonshine to Fort Sumter itself in the middle of Charleston Harbor and everywhere in between. So cool. I know when we think of South Carolina and battlegrounds, you know, most notably the Civil War comes to mind. Uh, sure. you know, that tumultuous time shortly, not too long after we were founded as a nation, we went to war again to, you know, try to divide ourselves and find our destiny. Um, but I was surprised to learn from this article that South Carolina played a key part in the Revolutionary War. So before we get to the story of these soldiers, kind of paint for me how South Carolina was even involved, because I think of Rhode Island, I think of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, uh, Maryland, even. You don't think of the South. Well, you know, there's an old adage, Phil, that winners get to write the history. And literally, quite literally, after the Civil War, 
the South became written out of many of the histories that were written about the American Revolution. Uh, there's a, a wonderful book written by a famous historian, uh, and it had three editions, one written before the Civil War, one just after the Civil War, and one about six years after the Civil War. Each edition is quite different. Before the Civil War, the Southern campaign of the American Revolution was multiple chapters in this book. Uh, after the Civil War, it's reduced to one chapter, and the third edition, the Southern campaign, is literally part of a chapter. And even in school ourselves in South Carolina, we were taught all about the shot heard round the world, Saratoga, Yorktown, Bunker Hill, Cornwallis surrendered, and everybody went home. Yet in South Carolina, fighting continued for 14 months after the surrender at Yorktown. So the South Carolina had more than 250 battles and skirmishes in the state, and these skirmishes and battles cover 42 of the 46 counties in the state. Yeah, that was the amazing statistic I took away from the article. 42 of 46 counties in the large state of South Carolina were engaged in some kind of uh, battle related to the fight for our freedom that made us the nation we are today. Uh, incredible. Let's unpack the story of these 12 soldiers remains that were discovered and uh, that we're going to, again, repatriate and memorialize um, this year, 2023. But uh, share with me kind of the nexus of this whole story. Well, we all battlefields are cemeteries, uh, particularly in the American Revolution. Nobody ever took anybody home. If they were buried at all, they were buried in hastily dug shallow graves right on the battlefield. We don't aim to disturb any remains of any soldier on either side on these many battlefields that we protect. And we do, the Battleground Trust does currently protect 75 historic sites in the state, both Civil War and Revolutionary War. But at the Camden battlefield, some of these bodies were quite literally just inches below the ground surface. Some had been disturbed by timbering, some by early 20th century farming, and sadly, others by collectors looking for artifacts. So we were aware that uh, collectors were aware of five bodies on the Camden battlefield. When that came to our attention through the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, we felt compelled to ex excavate the remains in order to protect them. So we planned this actually in 2019. Then COVID showed up. We stood down and waited until this past spring in March of 22 and decided to move ahead with the project. And so the excavations took place in the fall of 2022. As we're excavating these five bodies, five bodies we thought were there turned into 14 bodies. 12 Continentals, one Loyalist soldier from North Carolina, and one British soldier from the 71st Regiment of Foot, the Royal Highlanders, Fraser's Highlanders. And so they were all recovered. I'll tell you that the recovery itself was a very emotional experience for everybody on the team, archaeologists, anthropologists, forensic people, historians. Um, you know, it's one thing to write about military history as I do, map battles, talk about battles, uh, 
When you see people coming out of the ground and the manner in which they were killed and the manner in which they were buried, um, it, it's a very different experience. Um, it's, it's way too easy to be dispassionate about history. But when you're dealing with people that sacrifice their lives, and in our case, for the sake of liberty, it makes it a pretty surreal experience. I'm reading again from this article, and it said the soldier's excavation and reburial is not only a memorial, it's illustrative of what modern science can do. Several of the fallen were teenagers, and one had a musket ball in his spine. Um, Their names may actually one day be discovered through DNA testing and genealogy. Tell me a little bit about what we know about who we discovered, these Revolutionary War heroes, and... um, you know, how you came to the determination of their ages or even the fact that they were revolutionary era soldiers and not Civil War soldiers? Well, we know the we've long known the footprint of the Camden battlefield. We've studied Camden for more than three decades as an organization, as has the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology. So there was no question in our mind that we knew where the battlefield was. As the bodies were located, the artifacts initially told the first story. Continental soldiers wore buttons engraved USA on them, and all of the Continentals recovered had USA buttons. The Highlander had buttons. He had 22 of his 24 uniform buttons recovered with him, and they're all engraved 71st. The Loyalist soldier He had plain colonial buttons, and that's typical of militia on either side. Based on the location of where the body was recovered on the battlefield, we knew that that was where Bryan's North Carolina volunteers fought in the battle, based on lots of earlier studies. So we've assumed, based on all the evidence available, that the plain colonial buttons tell us he's militia, and the fact of where he was located tells us that he was more likely with that unit. And some of the soldiers' stories there that you've uncovered, or or we noted one was a teenager. Um, give me a little color on 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 who some of these men were. Yeah, so we've we've um at this point crafted biological profiles of the soldiers. Now, Phil, keep in mind I'm a humanities major. So when you get into science, you're way out of my lane. But in this project, I've learned we all have growth plates in our bodies, on our skull, pelvis, and knees. And forensic anthropologists can determine the age of any skeletal remain by these growth plates. And so during the recovery, there were two soldiers found buried together. And there's a fascinating uh poignant story about the archaeologist working on that grave. And she um, looked at the remains as they were uh, uncovering the skeletal remains of these two men, she thought men, and she asked one of the forensic scientists, a doctor from the Richland County Coroner's office, she said, how old do you think they were? And Dr. Atwell looked at the bodies and looked at the growth plates, and she said, I would estimate that these two soldiers are between 14 and 16 years old. So for the archaeologist on that recovery, she we had later interviewed her about her experience. She said, I went home that night and I had a son, I have a son 13 years old. And I got home 
from the battlefield. And I said, come here to mama and just sit down. And of course, immediately her son says, what's wrong, mom? You know, that's kind of an unusual thing. She said, just sit here and be quiet. Just let me hug you. And she hugged her son. And then the next day when she went back to the battlefield, that was the point where they were ready to remove the bodies to go to the coroner's office. So our protocol was that as each body was recovered, somebody would say a prayer. uh, Somebody would offer a few words in honor of that soldier. We would drink a toast of uh, rum in honor of the Continentals, rum that Gates did not have. And um, anybody who was a veteran on the team was given the honor of carrying the remains to the coroner's van. So this young woman was a veteran from Afghanistan. Um, She was given the honor of carrying one of these two boys to the van. And she said in the interview, as I carried the remains of this boy, literally the age of my own son, I couldn't help but think that there was a mother in Maryland in 1780 wondering if her son was ever going to come home. And of course, he never did, wondering what happened to him. And she said to herself, I'm not this boy's mama, but for right now, I'm his mother. And she took him to the van. To say that this was an emotional experience is a big understatement. Um, this connected everybody in a very real way to these soldiers that were recovered. And the cool thing about the story, Phil, and, and you certainly understand this, this is the founding story of America, the American Revolution. And so it turns out of the 12 Continentals recovered, five of them were teenagers. Wow. That's so amazing to think at that time in history. That even a young man, I mean, life was a little bit different. We maybe assumed a bit more responsibility on the family farm in the 1700s and in the early 1800s, sure. But that a teenager would be so moved to fight for this land that he'd only known for, you know, a few years of his own young life. Sure. that He would fight for it to the death to create a country that he had no idea what it would become, what it was like. He had no context of what he was actually fighting for other than this homeland and the beautiful great state of South Carolina where uh, they lived. Let's look a little bit at those that would have been involved in the Battle of Camden from your research and from your knowledge. Um, Although we can't actually name these individuals right now, who were the participants in these battles, uh, the Battle of Camden? Well, on the Patriot side, you have uh, militia from North Carolina and Virginia. Um, On the Continental side, you mostly have Continentals from Delaware and Maryland under the command of Baron DeKalb, um, who was mortally wounded in the battle and is buried in Camden. Um, And so based, again, on the recovery location of these bodies, we believe that most of the 12 Continentals are Maryland soldiers. Some of them may be Delaware soldiers. We don't know. But at the burial ceremonies that will be coming up, um, both the National Guard of Delaware and Maryland are coming to the event to honor their men who were who fought in this battle. There were a small amount of South Carolinians in the battle, but most of the South Carolinians had already been captured in Charleston at the fall of Charlestown, um, in uh, May of 1780, before this battle, which occurred in August 1780. 
So this is actually the second Continental Army that comes south and gets devastated in the Battle of Camden under the command of Horatio Gates. Wow. From Maryland, from Delaware, from North Carolina. Hmm. Some of these men, some of these young men, some of these teenage kids stepping up to fight for our freedom had probably never even left their county. And here they were marching all the way to the southern states where the trees look different, where uh, the topography is radically different than Maryland. Uh, Man, that had to be that just that had to be something else to do you think they knew what they were fighting for do you think they knew they were securing the land to become the greatest nation in the world or do you think they were just inspired to say i don't like these british tax collectors and this british authority telling me what to do on my farm you know i i think that's a really intriguing question um people that serve today in the military serve for a variety of reasons and certainly all veterans and active duty military uh, deserve our admiration and thanks. But as you've said yourself, at the time of the American Revolution, liberty in this nation was just a concept. Uh, And what would compel people to volunteer to fight in this war? There's a great quote by William Moultrie, who was a major general in South Carolina during the revolution and captured at Charleston. And I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but he says in his memoirs something to the effect of, at the beginning of the contest, we dared to face the greatest army and navy in the world who had the best generals and admirals. And we dared to do this with no organized army, no generals, no materials, nor war supplies, but yet we faced the greatest nation in the world and won the affair. And so for these teenagers and other men out of Maryland and Delaware that were killed at Camden, and 900 of them were killed in this battle, liberty is just a concept. You know, we're we're trying to form a nation. We're trying to do something with ideals. And maybe... Some of them did oppose taxes and and um, the fact that we did not have home rule and so forth. It's an intriguing intellectual proposition to just dream about what motivated these people to do the amazing thing they did. You really have to admire the story. I mean, here, here are kids picking up a musket, marching hundreds of miles south for a concept. Revolutionary war heroes. Certainly some of the very first veterans and the very first KIA that made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have all that we have today. I hope they are all looking down and know how worthwhile the sacrifice was because uh, hell of a country, huh, Doug? (laughs) Well, absolutely. If it were not for these soldiers and thousands like them, we would not be the country we are today. This is our founding story, and it's a good time to try to connect with our founding story. We could use a little more connection to who we are and how we got here and why we're here. Um, I think the whole country could use that uh, exercise. Amen. Now, let's talk about how we cap this off. We are going to have a reburial and a memorial ceremony, so to speak, for them down there in South Carolina. Tell me more about what that will look like. 
So we've worked diligently to make this as much as possible something these soldiers might have recognized in their own time. The coffins made for these soldiers are made out of uh, wood from uh, pine trees, uh, longleaf pines, that would have been saplings at the time of the battle. Some of these very trees that produce the wood to make these coffins, these soldiers may have walked under them uh, at the battle itself. They were recovered, and this is made from wood recovered in Camden. So they've been handmade in an 18th century style and manner. We've had a blacksmith make hand-wrought nails for the coffins themselves. The bodies of the remains of the soldiers will be transported in the funeral cortege on horse-drawn caissons to the funeral. Um, And as is the British tradition, the Highlander will be transported on a horse-drawn gun carriage. They'll appear at a funeral service that'll be a joint Anglican-Presbyterian service that if these men were religious, arguably their religion at the time. Uh, The service is going to be out of an 18th century prayer book that existed uh, in that era. After the funeral service, during the funeral service, there will be a flyover of F-16s, which, of course, were not there during the Revolutionary War, but why not? And um, so after the funeral service at Bethesda Presbyterian Church, where Baron DeCab is buried, will adjourn and then move to the battlefield for the battlefield honors ceremony. Uh, at the ceremony, um, again, they'll make that last movement on the horse-drawn caissons and the gun carriage. The battlefield honors will be conducted by the United States Army, uh, the Old Guard, and the South Carolina National Guard. And um, the British battlefield honors will be conducted uh, by the uh, Second Battalion Royal Regiment of Scotland. Now there are Brits that's in the army that serve in America. Fort Bragg, as an example, is not too far away. It's in North Carolina. The British Embassy chose to send Scottish soldiers because their man is a Highlander, and the Royal Regiment of Scotland is the descending unit. Um, from Fraser's 71st uh, Regiment of Foot. So they're sending a detachment of seven men to do the burial honors for the Highlander. Um, During that service, there'll be a flyover by Apache helicopters. Again, not 18th century, but uh, nonetheless, uh, to honor the men. And the governor of South Carolina will offer comments, as will the South Carolina Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and the Consul General of the uh, British Embassy located out of Atlanta, Rachel Galloway, will speak. And then the keynote address will be given by, given by an historian on my staff um, titled The Fate That Brings Us Here. And that's dedicated specifically to these 14 men. It sounds like you've thought of absolutely every detail, and I hope their souls are able to bear witness to the military hardware and the alliance we have, not only in the strength of the F-16s and the the Apache helicopters, but the alliance that was forged afterwards. Yeah, even the British ambassador said in an interview with one of our people that's now posted on our website that... um, Uh, Here we honor the men that served on either side of this battle. We honor their sacrifice. We honor their service. 
for two countries that then were enemies, but now are the closest of friends and allies. And that's a great story. And uh, everybody involved is as eager to honor the Highlander as we are the Continentals. You know, it, it, when you get down to the, the regular soldier, it's not their choice to determine political affairs or politics or what have you. Somebody has said, will you serve? And they said, yes, I will. And they're there to do a job. And uh, and that's true of the Revolutionary War. It was true in Vietnam. It was true in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the regular soldier is there to do a job, and they do it in an unrelenting way. And that's something that everyone should have to admire. If I want to flash back in history and learn more about the battlegrounds, learn more about this Revolutionary War story and the Battle of Camden, um, tell me more about South Carolina Battleground Trust and where I can get more information. Well, we have a, a website currently. We do have a dedicated website to this event called camdenburials.org. Um, on the Southern Campaign in general, I would recommend that listeners read two books. The title of the first book by Jack Buchanan is The Road to Guilford's Courthouse. And the second book, which is like a volume two of the Southern Campaign, is The Road to Charleston. And that was when the British finally evacuated Charleston in December 1782, and the South was finally restored back to Patriot control. I'm going to think almost a year after the surrender of the British, the war raged on in the South, and we still eventually won. Mr. Bostic, I can't thank you so much for flashing back in time with me and sharing that. And uh, a grateful nation stands with you uh, for this memorial service. And I look forward to checking out those websites. And, of course, the book. Every historian is going to give you a book to read. Uh, but I'll be sure to uh, put links up to all that in the well, show notes for this. Well, Phil, thank you, too, for what you do. It's a privilege to be in a military historian. And we're looking forward to this with great anticipation as we all honor the men and the women that helped found this country. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me, at Phil Briggs Vet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C., and I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 